Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? Very good to be here, Brian. Yes. It, as, as it seems between every recording we do, it is a long, hard road between each episode as we deal with these slings and arrows that the pandemic has to throw our way and everything else that's going on in the world right now. So Time's pa- Time passes quick, though. I mean, it seems like we just recorded the last one, but <laughs> here, here we are. Here we are. A lot has changed um, since the last one. Today, we're recording this uh, on Wednesday, July 22nd. We're a little off our normal recording schedule. This will go up next week on our uh, most likely on our normal Tuesday schedule, uh, but we did want to get this one in because of some travel and vacation plans and other things coming up for for various folks. So, uh, so thank you for joining us. Happy to um, be back with you again after the last episode when China officially took over the podcast. I think, um, not surprisingly, China is uh, uh, their presence will be will be felt and seen and heard very prominently on this episode as well. Um, so before we get to the substance, just with the normal, I'll dispense with the normal, uh, um, introductory notes, uh, we're not, uh, discussing any confidential information today. We're not providing legal advice. Uh, we are just having, as we said, an, an open discussion about a variety of topics, uh, trade related topics. Um, and, uh, also for those of you out there again, and, and again, we thank everybody who continues to listen and support the pod. Uh, please um, give us a rating, subscribe. Uh, we are on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, wherever you get your content, your pod content. Please subscribe, give us a rating, uh, and uh, hopefully join us every every two weeks when we put up new episodes. So before we uh, jump in, uh, just to give a little roadmap as, as usual, uh, we are going to start with China, sort of what we're calling the China Roundup. Um, this, this may become a semi-permanent segment at the outset of each episode. Uh, we're going to cover the latest on Hong Kong, going to cover uh, some other interesting actions related to that um, and related to other sanctions that have been imposed by both the U.S. and by China to counter uh, U.S. actions of late. Uh, that'll be sort of the first chunk of the podcast. And then we have two OFAC enforcement actions that have come out in recent weeks that we're going to cover. One is the, uh, the settlement with Amazon, and one is uh, the North Korean matter Accentra FZE, which is a joint DOJ OFAC resolution that just came out uh, about a week ago. And then in the lightning round, uh, we're going to be especially lightning. We're just going to cover one issue, one kind of traditional lightning round topic, some designations uh, touching on Nicaragua. And then we're going to um, end on a slightly more personal lightning round note, and we're going to talk a bit about human rights uh, as a, an underpinning for many of the sanctions actions that the U.S. Uh, takes and um, some recent experiences Tim and I have had that sort of touch upon that and, and just some some thoughts that we want to share on on that generally. So uh, before we dive in, Tim, anything anything more before we get going with, uh, before we go back to China once again? Just just to be clear in case Sifius uh, is listening, China has not really taken over the pod. There is no, they have no control over the pod. They have not invested in the pod. So so they please don't, please don't yeah. try to unwind the pod, Sifius, just because we're- Yeah, there's no equity. They, they have no equity stake. They don't have uh, access to material, non-public, inf- technical information. Exactly. Uh, 
yeah. So please uh, just wanted that to be clear for the that's, record. That's important. And and for those of you who get that Cepheus joke, then my hat, <laughs> my hat, my my hat, my hat is off to you. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and jump into, as I said, the China roundup. Um, there's going to be topic number one. We're there's kind of three parts to this. I, I think the big news from the last couple of weeks was uh, as we previewed on the last pod, uh, the passage of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act by Congress, and, and it was sitting on uh, the president's desk, and he did indeed sign it, uh, as, we, as we noted he would, would really have to, whether he wanted to or not. And that happened last week on July 14. And accompanying that is what we really want to talk about, which is the executive order that was issued um, at the same time, uh, Executive Order 13936 which is uh, styled as the President's Executive Order on Hong Kong Normalization. And so this executive order does a couple of different things. Uh, and number one, I, I would say it, it sets out in, in some pretty broad strokes and gives direction to heads of agency about a number of different steps that need to be taken now to either suspend or eliminate different or preferential treatment for Hong Kong uh, with respect to uh, its treatment by the U.S. vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, and and that touches on a couple of different areas. It touches on immigration. It touches on export controls. It touches on uh, customs and imports. It touches on CFIUS a, a little bit. And so, the sort of early stages of the executive order set that out and sort of make it clear that the president is now directing heads of agency to take all necessary steps to start sort of rolling back, undoing, suspending, modifying, et cetera, all of those various uh, different and preferential treatments. And then the second piece is more in the way of what we would, uh, kind of, what we kind of traditionally talk about on this pod and what we see with respect to OFAC administered sanctions, which is the criteria for blocking sanctions to be imposed on various individuals who are, uh, are acting with respect to Hong Kong. And I think there's a couple of interesting uh, pieces there. And so we talked about the way the, the sanctions piece uh, that exists in the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. We talked previously about the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act from late 2019, both of which contain some sanctions uh, provisions in them. They also uh, contain reporting requirements to Congress, uh, which may sort of indicate why this has now been dealt with by executive order. Um, but the essentially the uh, the blocking sanctions that are identified and the persons who are now potentially going to be targeted for sanctions, this is it's notable because this is in on the one hand, it's quite broad and it is it doesn't track precisely any of the any of the statutory authorizations. It's a bit broader than that. Uh, for example, any person uh, that is determined to have been involved directly or indirectly in arresting, detaining, or imprisoning individuals uh, relating to the China's national security law, they can be uh, targeted for sanctions. Um, people who are responsible or complicit in um, actions or policies that undermine de democratic processes or institutions in Hong Kong, threaten peace, security, stability, of, or autonomy of Hong Kong, engage in censorship or other activities with respect to Hong Kong, extrajudicial ju rendition, arbitrary detention or torture, of any person in Hong Kong uh, or other gross violations of internationally recognized human rights. Uh, and then also to be involved or be the leader of official of any 
certain government entities that are uh, involved in those acts. That's kind of a, that's a very broad canvas with respect to sort of Hong Kong related sanctions that are now in play. One thing I will note that is not in here is anything related specifically and in, in any detail to foreign financial institutions, which was something we talked about in the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. That is not, there's nothing in here specifically calling out foreign financial institutions, although there are sort of many ways they could potentially be entangled by these sanctions. So, so let, me, let me stop there and let me throw it to you, Tim. So what do you, I, I guess on sort of both of those big, you know, sort of the general criteria that set out at the beginning of the executive order to get the apparatus of the US government to sort of wipe out any uh, special treatment for Hong Kong, and then on the on the sanctions front, um, what do you what do you make of what do you make of that? What are your sort of initial impressions? So, I mean, I, my initial impression is that this was vast, relatively extensive. So, all of the different um, directives that the president gave to the various agencies to kind of um, stop giving Hong Kong separate treatment as being a separate system. It's pretty extensive. I mean, you know, it wasn't just exports. It was lots of different. It was immigration. It was it was uh, you know other areas that that kind of were quick and went beyond just kind of exports and imports, which was the the, the headline. And then on the sanctions issue, I agree with you, Brian. I I was surprised that they went broader in some ways than the statutory authorization. I mean, I don't think they went beyond it, but I but I do think that they certainly. Um, gave the Treasury Secretary lots of ways to impose sanctions against officials who had engaged in actions that limited the autonomy of, of Hong Kong. And, and as you said, there's not an express foreign financial institutions section, which did surprise me a little bit, although the, the material assistance, you know, it does have, it does include financial support for anybody who is subject to sanctions, which is basically the same thing as the finan foreign financial institutions provision. So if they wanted to sanction foreign financial financial institutions, they could do it using some of these provisions. But I do think that having an express provision that targets foreign financial institutions like the statute did is a much bigger deterrent, in my view, than kind of having a provision buried in here that could be applied to financial institutions or lots of other institutions if you want to. So it, it was it was fast. It was pretty comprehensive. Um, but we'll see if they start sanctioning people, because I think that's going to be the proof that's in the pudding. Yeah, so I think that that's that's a nice segue to sort of the next portion of this roundup, which is, so I would also note for those of you out there who haven't seen this, there is now officially on OFAC's website under the country and program page, there is now a Hong Kong related sanctions uh, tab uh, and link, which only just got put on there, you know, in the last several days. And so that is, as we've remarked before, as a symbolic matter, that's that's kind of a big step when there's a new program created, essentially, and that's what we now have. Um, but I do think that you raised the right question, which is, um, so the next piece of this that we're going to talk about are the sanctions against the four Chinese officials and the one Chinese uh, government bureau in Shenzhen related to uh, the detention and repression of the Uyghurs. And so we've talked about, we talked about this the last time with the uh, supply chain alert. We talked about this when the, um, the Uyghur uh, Act was passed by Congress recently. Um, interestingly, they took this step under the Global Magnitsky Act sanctions program, which is something, as we pointed out, they could have done all along without a new act of Congress because that focuses on human rights abuses. Uh, and then on the same, 
on the same in the same vein, China then took some steps to impose counter sanctions against uh, U.S. government officials, including notably Senators Cruz and Rubio, who have been kind of at the forefront of leading the charge on some of these Uyghur-related sanctions actions by Congress, and also against Lockheed Martin in connection with an arms sale, um, uh, a foreign military sale that was conducted uh, with Taiwan. And and so what I what I really want to what I really want to pose. I also add that just today, on Wednesday, the U.S. announced that they were closing uh, the Chinese consulate in Houston. They're shuttering the Chinese consulate, which is something that we have seen from time to time. That becomes this is a step that is that is very uh, it's a real thumb in the eye to a foreign to foreign country for obvious reasons. But it tends to happen when there are sort of uh, either espionage uh, undertones or other kind of diplomatic fraying that's going on. You sort of eject everybody from the company, you PNG them, persona non grata them, and, and you sort of shut everything down. We saw a lot of this with Russia around the time of the election interference in late 2016, early 17. Uh, so that's kind of where we are now. So this is, but this begs the question, in my view, whether all of this, including the new sanctions related to Hong Kong, is, is all kind of much ado about nothing and is, is, is a lot of symbolic posturing perhaps, and not a lot of weight to them. Because if we're talking about sanctioning Chinese officials, which is is largely the target here of all of these things, um, those those people are largely subject to travel bans. If not, you know, they're, they're some of the, the people who were just sanctioned under the global Magnitsky sanctions, they had visa restrictions imposed by Secretary Pompeo some months ago. Um, these are not, you know, these are not people that are subject to criminal indictment. They're not people that are, uh, you know, this this is clearly a complicating factor for them, but it, but in the way that China has tried to erect sort of a separate system that is detached somewhat and disentangled from the U.S., I, I question how much real impact this is going to have on any of them uh, and how much, how disruptive it is really going to be. And so I pose that question to you, sort of the Hong Kong sanctions and all these other measures that we're talking about, how much of this is just posturing and symbolic gestures, sort of shots across the bow going back and forth? Well, I, I mean, I, so I, I definitely think that a lot of this is, starts out as symbolic. So, I mean, I think you're exactly right to point out that even for a sanction that went against the, the treatment of the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, where there was a statutory authority for imposing those sanctions as part of a separate program, the U.S. didn't utilize those authorities. They they utilized an already existing authority under the GLOMAG to impose basically the same sanctions, which makes very little sense. But I do think that the, the the that OFAC is being appropriately cautious in using these new powers. Now, I, I will say that that's not a new story, but that these powers that Congress keeps providing the executive tend to take on a life of their own. So, for example, Venezuela started very small and is now a huge program. I think Russia was kind of the same way. I mean, I think Russia started a little bit bigger because it was multilateral and, and was was in response to an invasion, but it started small and has it has taken on somewhat of a life of its own. And Katza is the same way. So Katza, you know, they still haven't used, and by they, I mean the administration, still really hasn't used the power to go after Nord Stream 2, for example, that it was given to them in Katza, then given to them in Pisa, and now they're talking about giving them more powers again. So it was passed as kind of a symbolic 
we're sanctioning Nord Stream 2 without doing anything, but eventually the clamor becomes enough that these programs will take on a life of their own two, three years down the road, even if they start really small like this. I think you've got to be cautious because it's China. It's a gigantic economy. It's the second biggest economy in the world. And you get into a sanctions war with China, it's not like getting into a sanctions war with Venezuela or Cuba or Syria or a, a country that's economy is just not on the same scale as ours. So I, I think they should be very careful and they appear to be very careful with this, but I worry that once you get this power, eventually you use it and, and here it could have um, real unforeseen and, and unintended consequences. Yeah, and, and I would be, in, I'll be interested to see when the first wave of sanctions comes under the, the new executive order here relating to Hong Kong. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, uh, by the time this is posted, I wouldn't be surprised if there is, there are already been a number of people that have been sanctioned under this. Uh, but I, I will say related to that, just kind of to turn back to maybe the more practical considerations that we know our clients and many other companies are, are worried about right now, I, as we have said in the past, and I think as the executive order now makes plain, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's uh, unringing this bell with respect to Hong Kong is just not something that anybody should anticipate is happening, period, full stop, I think, anytime. Uh, now, maybe with the election in the fall and other events, perhaps over time in the next couple of years, things could maybe turn back around or, or sort of revert to where we were. But I don't think this is changing anytime soon. I think that's very clear here. And I think that that has a lot of knock-on consequences in addition to just the worrying about, you know, theoretical future sanctions risk and, uh, and other complications relating to uh, tougher export control treatment and other things for companies that are doing business there. And we've talked about this and, and we're, we've, I've been fielding questions about this, about what do we do? Do we, do we need to pick up stakes and leave Hong Kong? How, diffi how difficult is this gonna be for us to manage? How risky is it gonna be? Cost of doing business there is almost certainly uh, going to uh, rise and it was already you know, pretty, pretty uh, expensive. So uh, these are all the things that I think every, you know, we're certainly monitoring very closely on behalf of a number of our clients. And I think are the questions that, you know, from the, from the people who kind of live and breathe this or who are actually working there, operating there, or have substantial ties there, these are the things that it's still a little early to know exactly how this is all going to play out. But, but I think the, the early signs are that this is, this is going to be every bit as significant as it was sort of forecast to be, or it was, uh, you know, uh, projected to be from the early statements from the U.S. government. And I, and I, don't I don't think that uh, I don't think that can be taken lightly. I think this these are things that have to be accounted for and thought through from a sort of operational and compliance and just kind of business planning standpoint for many different uh, companies around the world now who have some ties to Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's it, and and I can't see turning back. I mean, I think if this were going to turn back, it would have been behind the scenes at the time with the threat of pressure and then diplomacy might have walked it back, but the Chinese could save face. They've been through it now. So they basically come in, limited the autonomy of Hong Kong to a considerable extent, taken the international hit that they're gonna take for it, you know, had sanctions imposed against them. The idea that the Chinese would go back now after having taken the hit, I mean, I think it's, 
you know, in some ways, I think this notion of treating Hong Kong like China, well, I, I guess China would pr prefer that Hong Kong have more favorable trade status while still being a part of China. In some ways, it plays right into their hand. I mean, we're treating China as Hong Kong and China wants Hong Kong to be part of China. So, so I, I, it's really hard to see an, an, an exit strategy for, for this. I, I think Hong Kong is very different now than it was six months ago and unlikely to ever be the same. Right, agreed. And, and, I, and I think, um, you know, I'll just make sort of one final comment. We mentioned that the sort of sanctions related, the counter sanctions that were levied by China. And I, again, I would expect that I've seen those sort of referred to as, uh, you know, kind of appropriately tailored to kind of match what the U.S. did. It's it's would be termed to be sort of an appropriate reciprocal response. I think with the closing of the consulate in Houston, we're going to see something similar uh, on the Chinese side uh, that targets the U.S. interests in similar ways. I'm certain of that. The and word, I think the word is the word is Wuhan. The word is yeah. that they're going to close the Wuhan consulate. Right. That makes perfect sense. And I think we're going to just continue to see this tit for tat over the course of the next, you know, several months, at least, if not beyond. And, you know, it just it given that uh, the world and the global economy are still on very uh, uneven and uncertain footing coming, trying to recover uh, some places better than others from the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, the uncertainty that continues to reign here with U.S.-China relations, I think, just makes that even more challenging. So it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to, to continue to track this and to see how this plays out going forward. But, um, you know, just I think more of more of the same as we, I, I don't want to call it a downward spiral necessarily, but uh, feels a little bit like that in terms of the trajectory of how things are going between the U.S. and China now. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll see. It, it, it definitely seems to be an escalating series of moves and counter moves by both countries, um, which may may end with the election. I, I, I actually think we'll end with the election either way it comes out, because I do think that what's going on right now, at least from the US side, is in part election related. Although, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong, I think any administration in the history of the US would have responded basically the same way um, in terms of sanctions. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's right. Uh, so with that, let's, uh, let's for now, at least put China to the side. I'm sure we will have much more China content coming for you in, uh, in, in our in following episodes. But let's uh, let's move on now and pivot to a couple of uh, recent and, and and interesting for different reasons enforcement actions from OFAC. And we'll I'll kick it to Tim to start with uh, Amazon. Let's talk about Amazon, the the company that has been helping all of us out while we've been in quarantine. So I'm sure that many listeners, probably all listeners are very familiar with amazon.com. Uh, on July 8th, Amazon entered into a settlement with OFAC as a result of a number of what appear to be screening failures. So Amazon was delivering products to persons in Crimea, Iran, and Syria, and that potentially had problems. Although the thing was is that some of those sales likely were food and medicine, and so potentially could have been okay um, uh, if, if done pursuant to general licenses. But I don't think those sales were even knowing because I think they got through the screening. They were selling to individuals in foreign missions of countries like Iran, and they were also selling uh, 
goods and services to SDNs. So basically, lots of different screening failures, um, which is not that unusual. Screening is kind of the dirty little secret of sanctions compliance in the sense that it's actually really hard. You can't just buy a program and just kind of leave it to a program and, and get, get it done. But, but lots of screening failures, um, they were self-disclosed. And so that is one thing that I think jumps out at, at uh, uh, why this settlement is a little bit unusual. It was not huge in terms of OFAC settlements. It was $134,000 penalty. And so we've seen obviously much bigger penalties in the millions and billions. But for a voluntary self-disclosure where you likely had commercial goods and services, all you know, very small amounts uh, at a time, relatively widespread screening failures, but those are almost always inadvertent. So it's a little bit unusual that you would have any penalty in a situation like this. But it, it seems to me that OFAC was trying to, to make a point that, you know, where you have one of the biggest companies in the world with this sort of widespread uh, number of screening failures, you really want the, to make an example to try and send a message to everyone else. Um, again, it, it, having worked with companies of this size in the past, this is a real challenge when you're trying to deliver goods quickly around the world, a huge volume, and getting the screening right is difficult. And so OFAC in the settlement talked about various things that Amazon uh, did as part of the settlement to improve its screening function, devoted more resources to compliance, um, addressed some of the screening failures that they saw there where there were essentially, um, they ran screening programs that wouldn't include common misspellings didn't have address screening to try and kind of be a backup to where you had somebody who was sanctioned but making an order through a different name or through a different spelling of a name. Um, and then, it, it, again, improving the human function because at the end of the day, you know, figuring out how, how loose or how tight to set the screen, figuring out what, how to account for misspellings, how to account for address matches um, is, is really important. And then lifting the holds that a screening program might put on, uh, might, might put on various persons is, is also really important and requires you know, people who are trained and, and understand what screening is about. And a Amazon apparently committed and had done, to, done all of those things to improve its compliance program as part of this, this settlement. Um, and so at this point, I, I think the, the big takeaway from the Amazon settlement, in, in my view, is that, you know, screening failures are, are of utmost importance, even in, you know, commercial businesses that have a high, that do a high volume of business, you still got to spend some money and get your screening function right. And again, it's, it's pretty hard. I mean, I, I, I know we've both had a number of cases where that's been a potential issue and, and both of us have kind of spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get that right. And it's much harder than people think. It, it, you just look at it and think, well, you just get some software, but it's a lot more than that. Yeah, so I agree with all that. I think at the end of the day, this is mostly a, uh, you know, a not not exactly a cautionary tale because this isn't as Tim said this is the the penalty here even though there was one is 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 pretty minor in the grand scheme of things but uh, reminding uh, reminding folks about uh, the perils of screening and the need to sort of be vigilant about how you're screening and making sure that the way you're screening is properly attuned to your business I'll I'll just mention two things uh, quickly so one is. Um, in the OFAC notice, they, they noted as an aggravating factor, they noted Amazon 
provides consumer goods and services via its e-commerce websites and processes billions of global transactions annually as one of the largest and most commercially sophisticated companies in the world. Well, they've they've listed that as an aggregating fa an aggravating factor, but quite frankly, <laughs> billions right. of billions of transactions. We're talking about you know a couple hundred here that are that are problematic. So that's not bad. So you, you know don't don't. Uh, I think anybody who's ever dealt with this knows that there are going to be some failures. Whether it's you miss a you just your screening just misses something because of the tuning. There's a misspelling that you miss. There's as Tim said, embassies and countries that would otherwise be fine to ship to are not maybe not caught because you don't kind of have the right fields being searched, et cetera. Not to mention the fact that, as everybody knows, given the pace that Amazon sort of does business uh, and their whole value proposition, this all has to be done incredibly fast. And there, and we've we've talked to clients about this who are in the e-commerce and retail space and figuring out uh, how to how to inject that to your process, but not to completely debilitate and sidetrack your business is not an easy thing to do. And so uh, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a question that can be quite vexing and I think does, you know, warrant further consideration from a compliance and sort of operational standpoint in a lot of different places. And when, with somebody like Amazon, who's this high visibility, that's being sort of flagged for something like this, I think that's going to naturally make others sit up and take notice. And I'm sure that that was part of the intent here uh, that OFAC had in mind by bringing this, by bringing this action. And then the, the other thing I would just mention, which is a much more minor point, is some of the violations that are cited in the notice are relating to a general license that was uh, in effect with respect to Crimea, and, and in particular, winding down certain uh, transactions and business in Crimea back when the, those sanctions originally went into place back in 2014 and 15. And basically, they were faulted for not uh, following up and adhering to the notice requirements, the reporting requirements that were uh, attached to using those general licenses. And so, OFAC said that you're, you know, the otherwise you're otherwise authorized activities there are, are sort of deemed to be uh, nullified because you didn't report appropriately. And that's, I think, just a useful reminder as well that that when with respect to some general licenses and other you know, obligations that uh, companies have uh, under the various regimes that you need to be mindful of, of those types of requirements as well, because they're easy to forget or they're easy to sort of let slip by the wayside. And it looks like here, they were not even forgotten. They were actually adhered to with respect to many other transactions, but there were a few that maybe slipped through the cracks or weren't timely reported. So um, in any event, just a couple of, uh, just a couple of additional uh, pieces there but I but I do think at the end of the day this is all about it's all about screening and all about thinking uh, thinking through how that may play into you know your own business as you as you read this um, and so with that let me pivot to the the second of the two OFAC actions our, our third and sort of final topic in in the main portion of the pod today which is a North Korea enforcement action focused on a company called Accentra FZE and it's Accentra FZE is a for those who didn't read anything on this, uh, is a uh, they were uh, the violations here related to providing filters, cigarette filters, and other related products to North Korea through a variety of front companies uh, in China and elsewhere. And and Accenture is based in UAE, but uh, in typical fashion, when we see these North Korea cases, what ended up happening was that 
um, because of the existence of front companies and because this was a will, these were willful violations. This was a, they quote some of the email correspondence that's going on between the end customers uh, and the uh, personnel at Accentra about obscuring the fact that North Korea is the sort of ultimate beneficiary here. Uh, these were these were ultimately uh, run through U.S. banks or branches, foreign branches of U.S. banks that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And voila, you have uh, you have prohibited services that are being rendered uh, for the benefit of North Korea, and you have violations. And and so the couple of interesting things I'll, I'll note here. So I think, as I said at the outset, this was a joint DOJ-OFAC resolution. DOJ actually entered into a DPA, Deferred Prosecution Agreement, with the company. They noted at the top of their uh, press release that this is the first corporate enforcement action under uh, criminal uh, under the North Korea sanctions regulations. So that's interesting to note. This isn't a particularly large uh, enforcement action. The, the penalty here was less than a million dollars. It was 600, uh, 660,000 US essentially that was paid. Um, but uh, it is still noteworthy that that is, that is the case. Um, there also was, um, there was a three year period for the DPA, which is pretty typical. Um, there's, you know, they have not surprisingly, they've made a number of commitments, compliance commitments related to the, the DPA with DOJ and also the settlement that they uh, entered into with OFAC. There was no additional penalty paid to OFAC that was deemed covered by the penalty to DOJ. Um, so, you know, we do see these from time to time, these sort of joint actions. Obviously, again, I encourage uh, I encourage people to maybe look at the um, look at some of the excerpts from uh, either the factual statement that accompanied the DPA, which is available on DOJ's website, or the OFAC notice, because they do have some juicy bits from some of the email exchanges, as I said, which talk about a very, these are, it, back in my day as a, uh, as a prosecutor, if we were to get email evidence like this, you're sort of salivating because you just don't get it this clean this often. This is pretty, pretty clear, pretty brazen uh, that they were trying to evade sanctions. Uh, by not uh, making it known that there was any North Korean benefit or involvement here. So uh, those are that's always useful to see uh, sort of an, another example of that, I think, playing out in, in a real fact pattern. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think there's also, uh, we talked a few episodes ago about some of the warnings relating to North Korea generally uh, that have been put out by uh, the, the alert that was put out. And, and even though that was more focused on cyber, I think the same threads that you saw there, the same threads that you saw in the UN report are, are true here, that the, the tactics to try to evade, to try to gain access to US uh, financial uh, institutions uh, to deal in US dollars and to get access to potentially to goods that have uh, that originate from the US or have ties to the US are uh, continuing to persist and, and there's gonna to continue to be a premium placed on uh, having appropriate compliance measures in place to, to be able to, to suss those things out. Uh, and if, if not, then companies are gonna be held to account. Again, here, this was a, this was a, uh, a pretty brazen uh, sort of uh, illustration of sanctions evasion. But I, I would, uh, as a last thought before I throw it to Tim, there's clearly um, 
you know, they make a they make a big show, as is always the case in a DPA, that there's continued cooperation from the company into ongoing investigations of individuals and other entities. Given the number and extent of the uh, the number of entities and the extent of this, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see additional enforcement actions coming kind of out of this cooperation, perhaps, uh, in the future uh, with respect to whether it's individuals or companies, especially if there's Chinese companies or, or other banks involved, uh, the administration will certainly take um, every opportunity to take a swing uh, at, at, a, at a Chinese bank or a Chinese entity who may have been involved in a scheme like this. So stay tuned there. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, one big takeaway is that this uh, the lengths that companies will go to to try to hide these ties are pretty pretty e extraordinary, and and being able to um, being able to weed that out in your due diligence and in your screening is is can be very difficult. And uh, and nevertheless, if you if you if you are sort of asleep at the wheel or if you fail to catch one, then there there could be some real consequences for for you as well. Yeah, I mean, a couple of quick takeaways from this. I mean, I noticed too that this was uh, this was announced as the first corporate prosecution with respect to violation of the North Korea sanctions. I think what seemed to have gotten the company, the DPA, was that they did make a pretty thorough search of the emails and got emails that said things like, don't mention my country. That's what the North Korean purchaser was mentioning. And those are the types of emails that prosecutors salivate over. I, I think the second thing I would take away from this is that it is um, a much more traditional uh, involvement of China in the U.S. sanction system, that is, as a diversion hub. I mean, that's been, you know, when you talk sanctions in China, traditionally, it's diversion to North Korea or diversion to Iran has been really where China shows up in a lot of the sanctions actions until, you know, recently. We've been talking a lot in the last few episodes about ways that China is being directly sanctioned, but this is a, a diversion case and one that was relatively interesting. And, and don't forget um, that the UAE in Dubai shows up as the diversion hub here. So you've kind of got two big diversion hubs. You've got the use of Chinese front companies and you've got some, some great emails that I think resulted from a, a relatively, likely relatively thorough internal investigation by the company that, that got them a, a relatively small penalty and a, and a DPA on the criminal side in the face of some pretty bad conduct. And I, I won't be surprised if there is more to come in the aftermath of this. Yeah, and, and just one final thought is that, and I mentioned this already, but I think it bears repeating, the, the only reason that we're even talking about this case is because there was involvement of US banks and foreign branches of US banks, yep. US correspondent accounts. And when people scratch their heads and say, I don't understand how the US even has jurisdiction to go after something like this, this is, and this is, this is it, this is the hook. And this is honestly, from a compliance standpoint, from we are dealing now with a number of these on behalf of clients where despite all good intentions and precautions and compliance measures, these types of connections were missed and they're, and it's trying to sort those things out and understand uh, how do you prevent against that? How do you screen for that? How do you train your people to recognize that? Uh, what, do you, what can you automate? What do you have to rely on from you know, manual human uh, intervention to, to catch stuff like this? It's, it's, it, despite you know, what OFAC may think or anybody else may think is not, this is not easy stuff. This is, it's tricky. It's hard to manage. Um, and so for the 
people that may be both at the banks and other way, otherwise who might be involved in something like this, you know, catching this is, is very, is very difficult. And, and I think continues to be one of the sort of big challenges that we see uh, and that concern our clients certainly on kind of a, an ongoing basis. Um, so with that, I think that basically brings us to the end of uh, the main portion of the program for today. And uh, we will pause for sound effects. Uh, and only two topics on the lightning round today, as I mentioned, and for the first one, I'll, I'll throw it to Tim for uh, an introduction to uh, a Nicaragua-related issue. We don't talk much about Nicaragua. And, and for good reason, the Nicaragua sanctions program is relatively limited right now. It's entirely list-based. It's really targeting the government of, of President Ortega uh, and, and based on this notion that um, Nicaragua and Venezuela and Cuba are this, this troika of, of socialist leaders who, who are the designated enemies of the maximum pressure campaign by the United States. And so on July 17th, so just last Friday, we had another uh, sanction, but again, this was imposed uh, against uh, President Ortega's inner circle. Um, two people who were the, the target of these sanctions, one was Juan Ortega, President Ortega's son, who manages a communications company, public relations company, that also was the subject of sanctions. It does a lot of public relations work for the government of Venezuela, and in the view of OFAC, um, is involved in, in corruption and, and bribery, likely through this communications work. The other person who was sanctioned was a, a guy named Jose Jorge Mojica. Um, he's described by OFAC as the, the most trust, one of the most trusted frontmen of the Ortega family and acts as one of their personal representatives to, to create shell companies to, to hide their, their uh, money and their, what OFAC designates as their, their illicit profits. And so, and, and another organization that uh, Mojica controlled, it's a, a company called Mundo Digital. So, so basically, very targeted sanctions at the, the Ortega inner circle. The, the goal of these sanctions is to really put pressure on Ortega and, and limit his ability and the ability of his uh, close associates to do business in the world economy. Um, it doesn't seem to be having a huge effect on Nicaragua at this point, although it, it has put Nicaragua, I think, on the, the um, radar screens of many compliance programs around the world as a company that is, or as a country that is subject to U.S. sanctions, and so more risk than than countries that are not subject to U.S. sanctions. But at least as of now, this program remains pretty focused and limited, really, on the Ortega inner circle and, and nobody else within Nicaragua. Yeah, the only the only comment I would have really on this is, and this is something we've alluded to before, the approach on Nicaragua over time does tend to resemble more and more the approach on Venezuela, which is the go after the president's inner circle. Uh, you know, Maduro and his family members and inner circle have been the frequent targets of, of uh, OFAC designations. Same is now true at Ortega. Obviously, as Tim said, I think the reach and this, the scope and the impact of the Nicaragua program is more limited at this point. And, and that's to some degree, the fact that Venezuela's oil industry is so massive and has had such a big, uh, far-reaching kind of impact on other aspects of the global economy, and Nicaragua doesn't really have anything comparable to that. But I do think it's no notable that the approaches, th those these approaches do seem to be 
really out of the same playbook. And I think we should expect more of the same. And if there are additional uh, kind of aggravations, agitations, or provocative actions being taken by Ortega or any of his people, uh, that we can expect more of the same going forward. Uh, and that anybody who's in Nicaragua or does business with uh, entities in Nicaragua will need to sort of stay vigilant to make sure that they're not uh, kind of tied up too closely in any of those with any of those individuals or entities or else, uh, you know, as, as OFAC is fond of saying, there's, you know, considerable sanctions risk that could go along with that. Uh, and so with that, I think we will leave, uh, we'll leave item number one. And so item number two, as I alluded to at the outset is, is a little, um, it's a bit of a, a, we're diverging from the norm here a little bit to talk about something a little more personal. Um, and, but we're actually, what we're really talking about at the end of the day for, for framing it within the context of our podcast is human rights considerations as an underpinning for U.S. policy and in particular U.S. sanctions policy. Uh, this is something that we, we do talk about a lot. We've already talked about today. We've talked about with respect to the actions uh, the U.S. has taken with respect to the, the Uyghurs and the treatment of the Uyghurs by the Chinese government. Uh, it, it applies to Hong Kong. It applies to, as Tim alluded to, the Global Magnitsky Act sanctions, which trace their roots all the way back to the mistreatment by the Russian government of a, of a, uh, a whistleblower and lawyer in Russia um, some number of years ago. And uh, as he became a symbol for human rights uh, considerations sort of around the globe. And it is a it is a fact and reality that the U.S. does rely on that as a um, as a pretty significant um, you know underpinning for many of the actions that it chooses to take with respect to to China and many other nations around the world that are deemed as uh, you know either either hard or soft adversaries depending on sort of the day of the week or who you're asking within the U.S. government. Um, you know, that being said, as we have alluded to when we brought up a few episodes ago, the, uh, the response here by the government to uh, the widespread uh, protests related to uh, police brutality and George Floyd, um, and certainly in many other respects in the U.S. right now, um, the U.S. oftentimes, I believe, uh, you know, by China, certainly by many others, uh, is is being sort of called out for being hypocritical on many of these issues because uh, it doesn't take uh, any uh, deep analysis of the news to understand that that the U.S. is is sort of struggling with many of these same issues and and is perhaps um, taking on a do what we say not what we do type of mode with with respect to many of these uh, many of these items. Um, so the area that we want to bring up is uh, the death penalty. And in particular, the fact that uh, the U.S. certainly is not the only country in the world that still uh, implements the death penalty in its criminal justice system. But uh, I, I would venture to say that in uh, what we would probably view as our own cohort of the sort of civilized world, if you will, uh, the, the Western, more advanced economies, uh, we are among the few that still does. Uh, and uh, I think, and so last week to sort of tie this all up as to what prompted us to want to talk about this, Tim and I, um, we represented, uh, represented, unfortunately, past tense, an individual, Wesley Ira Perkey, uh, who was sentenced to death by um, lethal injection many, many years ago, uh, sat on federal death row for many years, 
uh, almost two decades. And we, we took up his cause and began representing him with some um, really truly brave and heroic colleagues from the ACLU and federal public defenders offices uh, in Indiana, Missouri. And um, we brought a claim in federal court in DC some months ago um, to establish uh, that Mr. Perkey was mentally incompetent to be executed based on uh, significant uh, brain damage and other defects that he has suffered over time. Uh, and there are, there's controlling Supreme Court precedent on this that, that says it's an Eighth Amendment. Essentially, it's unconstitutional to execute somebody who doesn't understand the reasons why they're being executed. And we had independent medical evidence of this fact, and we brought a claim. Uh, the district court in D.C. ruled in our favor. Uh, on the day of his execution, the uh, last Wednesday, July 15th, the D.C. Circuit, by a, a unanimous panel uh, of Democratic and Republican appointees, also ruled in our favor, upholding the preliminary injunction. And then uh, at 2.30 in the morning, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision with no opinion given, uh, reversed. And there were a few other legal actions that were swirling around at the time, um, but uh, those also uh, were uh, sort of undone ultimately by uh, the Supreme Court and the majority of the Supreme Court. And uh, the current senior leadership of the Justice Department was all too eager to move forward with the execution the day after his actual execution warrant had expired. Uh, and he was uh, put to death at 8 a.m., approximately 8 a.m. last Wednesday, July 15th. And so I wanted to raise this just, and we wanted to raise this just to underscore the point that, uh, you know, the uh, the foundations of, of the U.S. Uh, actions on human rights bases, whether it's uh, sanctions or otherwise, uh, are are fragile and are subject to attack. There is no question about that. And to anybody who doesn't believe that, I think you need to really take a hard look at um, at sort of the, the the facts on the ground, so to speak, and the reality of it. And uh, you know, not to this is not necessarily from from my perspective a uh, you know, trying to put the death penalty on trial here, but I, but I think that as as with free speech and free assembly and protest and some of these other things that are the underpinnings again of uh, our actions, the actions of our government, I think it does bear scrutiny as to what the U.S. is doing on these on these fronts as well, and and I think it does. Uh, it does imperil to some degree the effectiveness and the authority that the U.S. has and would like to think that it has uh, going forward as, it, as, it, as the branches grow ever sort of more reaching, far reaching around the world with respect to China and otherwise, uh, you know, wh where do we reach a breaking point? Because uh, I think these are, these are, these are problems that uh, are going to at some point, catch up with us, to, and and uh, you know people can pretend otherwise, but I but I think we, uh, it's it's something perhaps a lip a little less technical and antiseptic in the trade world to think about the next time you see something relating to a human rights basis for a sanctions program or a sanctions action being taken. Uh, just just think long and hard about what the what the reasons are for that, and 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 perhaps what if uh, China or anybody else had more. Um, of a hold on the global financial system, what they may be able to do to us if uh, the shoe was on the other foot, perhaps. Yeah, so the United States is a government that 
prides itself rightly on being founded on principles of human rights. I mean, it was founded using a document that stated that, that all men are created equal and, and laid out the human rights that, that were inalienable. Now, to be sure, our country has struggled to be true to what it said on paper in the words of Dr. King. So, so it's not always been a straight line between the statement, all men are created equal to a society where human rights of all are, are continuously honored. But until recently, um, not only in connection with the death penalty, but just generally, I think I was of the view that the U.S. still had a place and a role to play as a leader in human rights because it appeared to be trying to, to be true to what it said on paper. It appeared to be trying to go in the right direction, even with the death penalty, even though we're kind of an outlier among civilized countries, even with the death penalty, the U.S. appeared to be moving towards being true to what was said on paper. The events of last week with West Berkey left me very discouraged on that score. Um, the idea that our government would line up three people to be killed as what I view as a complete publicity stunt. Um, you know, executions hadn't happened for 17 years and this administration was hellbound to uh, kill three people in order to end that and then um, use that as an election year publicity stunt. It's just outrageous. It's the sort of thing that if it happened in China, in the Philippines, or if it happened anywhere else in the world, we would rightly, rightly be condemning them. The human rights bodies would rightly be condemning them. And, and then to see what we saw in the, in the Perky litigation, and it happened with some of the others, was also just, in my view, an outrage. When, when four federal judges decide that there is a claim there, and four more on the Supreme Court decide the same thing, in a, in a, in a country of laws, the, the majority, if they, they, they had their five votes, if they were right, they should have said it. They should have explained it. I think you and I both, if they had, had, had written some, some sort of compelling or even uh, made an attempt to, to show why it is that they were gonna send this guy to his death in a few hours and why, despite the fact that they were outnumbered five to eight, that was the right thing to do, I, 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 I wouldn't agree with them but I would respect that as some attempt to comply with human rights and the rule of law. But I, 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 I will say that I'm very discouraged right now because the United States doesn't appear to be trying at this point. And when you're not trying, how can you stand as an example to, to countries like, uh, like the, the individuals in Hong Kong where we're, we're trying to, to impose sanctions based on our, our you know, view of, of human rights and, and view of the Chinese lack of respect for their human rights that's embodied in the national security law. So, so I will say from that, that last week left me both discouraged as an American, but also discouraged from, as someone who studies sanctions pretty closely, because a lot of sanctions policy, and you named all of the programs, Brian, so the global Magnitsky and the Hong Kong sanctions and sanctions with respect to, to Cuba. I mean, that's the justification for the Cuba sanctions and it's justification for a number of the other sanctions are built on this idea that um, the United States, it's important to foreign policy to uh, be true to what we said on paper and to, to really stand up for human rights and to try and make sure to the extent we can, we can prevent human rights violations in other countries. But if we can't get our own house in order, I, I'm very concerned about our, our ability to do that around the world. 
Yeah, well said. Uh, I don't. I don't think. Unfortunately, I don't think we have any easy answers to any of this. I think we just felt compelled to share our experience and to flag this issue because I do think it is one, as we've said, that people need to think about and understand how it does affect all of the all of the issues that we do talk about on a regular basis and and whether or not there could be uh, there could be any consequences, uh, you know, down the road perhaps of. of from these inconsistencies and other tensions that, that we're identifying. So with that, I think we will conclude the lightning round. That was not the most lightning of second topics, but I think <laughs> we're, we're going to, we're going to give ourselves a pass on that one. It's been a long, it's been a long, a long week. week. It's been a long week. Uh, but in any event, uh, we will, that, that'll wrap us up for today. Uh, we will be back in a, in a couple weeks. Uh, this will be posted hopefully the last week of July and we'll be back in August for, for our next episode. Uh, so again, to everybody, thank you for uh, tuning in. Again, please subscribe, give us a rating. Uh, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, you name it. Uh, we, we appreciate the support. We appreciate all the, the nice comments that people give. Um, maybe someday Tim or I will get another haircut, but uh, probably not anytime not soon. Not anytime soon. Not anytime soon in the age of quarantine. Uh, but, uh, but in any event, um, we, until the next time, please, everybody, stay well. Uh, think on what, we've, what we closed with today. And, and of course, please stay sanctions-free. Stay sanctions-free, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.